what were you thinking about when you walked through the doors of church this morning? My hope is that after reading Psalm 87 and looking at it together, uh, you, you would go back and you would do it a little differently, that you would have a little uh, different uh, view as you entered the doors of the church, because this is a great psalm telling us of the glories of the church. Let's read Psalm 87 now. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab, that's a code word for Egypt here, and Babylon, behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Let's ask for God's help now. Father in heaven, as we uh, approach this psalm, as we consider the beauties of your church this morning, I feel uh, uh, just a a sense of total inadequacy, uh, that, that words will fail that, that um, uh, I, I, as a messenger, will fail to exhibit the excitement and joy that comes from being part of the church. And I pray, Lord, that you would not let those things hinder your people. Help us, Lord, as we look at this text, to delight in what you have done, the grace that you have shown in purchasing a people for yourself and bringing them into your church, which you care for and love more deeply than we could possibly know. Help us now, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Anne Rice, author of the best-selling Vampire Chronicles, had a much-publicized conversion to Catholicism in 1998. In 2010, however, she announced on her Facebook page that she was quitting Christianity. Rice wrote, Today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or being part of Christianity. It is simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. Rice went on to say in a subsequent post that following Christ does not mean following his followers, and therefore Rice was leaving the church, she said, in the name of Christ. Rice and many others with her have concluded that the institutional church is at best dispensable and at worst a dangerous corrupting influence upon one's own personal spirituality. So for those of you who became members this morning, maybe I should have interjected, what are you doing? Well, if contempt However, is the attitude of many who are outside or leaving the church, cool indifference is too oftentimes the attitude that is found by those in the church. Maybe you're not leaving the church like Rice, but it's not exactly something that you're excited about. 
Church is okay. It's part of what we do in West Michigan. It's something that our family does. And even if the coffee isn't very good, the sermon is sometimes interesting and the people are okay. The church can, in our minds, sometimes sort of be like our child's Christmas program. It's on the calendar. We'll go because we know we're supposed to. It'll be fine. We'll come home. We'll move on to the next thing. No big deal. Well, Psalm 87 challenges both these sadly prevalent attitudes of contempt on the one hand and indifference toward the church of Jesus Christ on the other. And it calls us to love and view and value her more highly. Through Psalm 87, God wants to uh, deepen our love for and heighten our esteem for the church so that the way we view the church and the way we love the church comes to resemble more closely his love and his esteem for her. To cause us uh, to see that belonging to the church of Jesus Christ is one of the greatest privileges imaginable. And so the outline for this message is simple. First, we'll look at the glorious nature of the city, of the church. We'll look at five features of that. And then we'll look at the joyful city, the joyful church. And if it would be helpful for you, there's an outline that should be in your bulletin. But before we begin by looking at our first point, some of you may be thinking, was he even paying attention to the psalm that was read? There was not a, a mention of the church here. How does this psalm, which is about uh, some place, some city called Zion, what does that tell us about the church? That's a very good question. In the Bible, God sometimes uses certain things as symbols or signposts that point ahead to certain truths, certain uh, important, uh, vast truths that will later appear uh, developed in, in the New Testament or elsewhere. Bible uh, scholars often refer to these forward-pointing signposts as types. So an example that you might be familiar with would be how in the Old Testament we read about the Passover lamb and how the Passover lamb's blood was shed so that uh, God's people could be saved from judgment. And then we see in the New Testament how uh, Jesus is in fact the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we see how that Passover lamb was pointing ahead to and anticipating Jesus and the work that he would do. Well, we need to realize that the Bible sometimes does this because it's key to understanding the meaning and the importance of our passage today. Well, the psalmist is speaking of Zion, which is another name sometimes given for the city of Jerusalem. God, through the psalmist, is he's pointing ahead. He's pointing ahead to an, a more ultimate reality, the church of Jesus Christ. Zion is a type of that anticipates the church, as you see in Galatians 4 and Hebrews 12 and Revelation 21. So I say this up front because I don't want you to miss the importance of what is being said or, or the application of what's being said as we go through this psalm. While the psalmist is speaking first of all about Zion, about Jerusalem, that's how his first hearers would have understood him to be speaking, Psalm 87 finds its ultimate fulfillment and meaning in the church of Jesus Christ. So this is a psalm about the church. So five truths uh, that, are, that, that just point to the glorious nature of being a member in Christ's church. The first glorious truth is that she, the church, rests secure. We see this in verse 1, that Zion rests on the foundations that have been laid, that have been poured by the Lord. 
This month uh, in Los Angeles, uh, the new Wilshire Grand Tower is set to open. A number of years ago, it made news, uh, this 73-story, 1,100-foot-tall building, uh, as it set the record for the longest continual pour of concrete, if you care about that sort of thing. It was 19 hours of pouring continuous concrete, 227 trucks pouring over 21,000 cubic yards of concrete, 7.1 million pounds of reinforcing steel, enough to build a 10-story building, laying a slab of concrete 18 feet deep over a space nearly the size of uh, two-thirds of a football field. The project cost millions. It required part of downtown Los Angeles to be shut down for a period of time, and yet no one doubted the importance of doing this, because everyone knows the importance that a good foundation is, that it has. This massive concrete foundation uh, to this Wilshire Grand Tower is essential for keeping this gigantic tower from toppling over when the high winds blow or when the earth quakes. The integrity of the building and the safety of its inhabitants depend on having a reliable foundation. And so when the psalmist says that the foundations of Zion are laid by the Lord, it is a statement about the security of Zion. The Lord has provided a foundation for his city uh, that will not, uh, so that it will not topple over or, or blow over when, when the high winds of, of trouble come or when the world appears to shake. In verse 5, the psalmist goes on to say that the Lord will establish Zion or make her secure that he will make his church secure forever. The church of God rests on sure foundation. She will not be moved, God promises. What a remarkable promise that this is that the church possesses. The Lord has established his church and no scheme of the devil, not the weakness of the men and women in the church, not false teachers, nor the brutality of persecution shall topple her since God has laid her foundations and he has promised to establish her and make her secure. What other institution on earth can make this claim? What other empire or kingdom can boast such security or permanence? The greatest empires on earth have lasted but a few centuries. Rome and Greece are just now chapters in the history books. England's empire faded over time. The United States, too, will come to an end. But not so with the church. She has been established by the Lord God Almighty, Psalm 48, 8 says. The empires of the earth shall pass away. The sun and moon shall dissolve. Even good things like marriage will come to an end, as Matthew 19 says, But by the word of God's promise, the church shall never pass away. She shall be forever kept safe and preserved by God. What a privilege it is to belong to a body that will outlast all things. Second glorious thing that is said of the church is found in verse 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. And here uh, the gates are being used to refer to the whole city. And he loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. 
This is a really a remarkable thing that the psalmist is saying. I, I just marveled at it as I was preparing this sermon and, and kept coming back to it time and time again. Do you catch the comparison that the psalmist is making here? The Old Testament tells uh, the story of, of how uh, God, in order to save sinners, chose the family line of Jacob or, or Israel, as he's sometimes called, to be his special people. That was how God was going to work his salvation. He was going to work out his salvation through Jacob or, or uh, Israel's line. And so he loved Jacob. He loved Israel with this deep and unshakable love. But here... The psalmist says that God loves all his chosen people, even though he loves all his chosen people, uh, uh, wherever they live and wherever they work, God's love for the city of Zion was greater than all the other places where his people were. The psalmist isn't drawing a comparison between God's love for Zion and uh, the enemies of God's people. He's not doing that. The psalmist is saying that God loves the city of Zion even more than he loves the Christian school or the house where the Christian family lives. Does that startle or surprise you? That God would play favorites like that? We don't uh, tend to think uh, like this today. In fact, we might even be a little put off by such a, a, an assertion. We don't suppose that God would show a preference like this. But this is what God says right here in verse 2. God has a special, greater love for Zion, for the church. So if that's the case, the question uh, is why? Why does God love Zion even uh, more than the other places in Israel? What distinguishes her from all these other dwelling places? Why should God love Zion more than any other place where his people are? Well, we know from uh, the rest of Scripture that God chose Zion to be the place where he would reveal himself in a special way. He would say something to his people about his character and his grace in a special way. He established Zion, he established Jerusalem as the place where his temple would be built and where he would make himself known through the commanded public worship, the ordinances of sacrifices and the reading of the law. Zion would be the place where God's people came for festivals and, and feasts, where they would together celebrate the mighty acts of God. And he would be present there in, in a way unlike any other place in Israel. God was present in Jerusalem and in his temple specifically in a unique way. It's why the Jews made regular tri trips to Jerusalem. They didn't go somewhere else. They went to Jerusalem, to Zion. But again, we have to keep in mind here that Zion was, was pointing ahead to another reality. Zion is pointing ahead to the church uh, after Christ. After Jesus came, God's public worship that what he has commanded is to take place in the church, not in, in the temple. And he has given to us his word to be read and to be preached in the church. He's commanded public prayers to be made when his people gather together as we've done this morning. He's given uh, the waters of baptism and, and the Lord's Supper as signs and seals of his great acts of salvation. So if Zion is pointing ahead to the church, and this is a psalm about the church, we must realize the great and special love that God has for the public worship of his church. Have you ever considered 
that God has a special love for the gathering of His church. When His church gathers to worship together on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, His love for that exceeds even the genuine delight that He has when you do personal devotions. That God loves it when you, like the prophet Daniel, go into your room and pray in private. Uh, he, he loves it even more when his people come together to worship as the church. Now in the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, God's people were commanded uh, to uh, worship privately in their families. They were not to neglect this, but the psalmist says, if he ever had a choice, if he ever had to choose between worshiping privately and worshiping with God's people... He would always prefer public worship because God loves this even more. And this is such an important message, I think, for us to hear. Increasingly in our day, it's thought that we can love Jesus, but not the church. That, that the church is a, is a dispensable part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Or that it matters very little where we choose to worship, whether we choose to worship God alone in our living room or in our deer stand, or whether we worship with God's people in the church. My wife Suzanne was talking to someone recently who was telling her that uh, where they lived, more and more the, uh, people in their friend groups were deciding that they could worship God just as well if they stayed at home with their families in their living room as opposed to making the 15-minute drive to the local church. It's in the air that we breathe. David Clarkson, who is an old English minister, preached a psalm on uh, a sermon, sorry, on Psalm 87 that was entitled, provocatively, I think, "Public Worship to Be Preferred Before Private." And he answers these people. He answers this response to this way of thinking about the church. And it was, it, I just think it's so helpful. So I'm going to read a, a quote from him. Some absent themselves from public worship under the pretense that they can serve the Lord at home just as well as in private. How many are apt to say that they could see their time spent just as well at home praying, reading a good book, or conversing about some important topic as in the use of the ordinances, the commanded worship of God's people in the public gathering of the church. They see that private prayer is as good to them as public prayer. And, pub and private reading of Scripture is as profitable as public preaching. They speak of their private duties or their private devotions, like Naaman uh, in, in uh, the book of Kings spoke of the waters of Damascus. May I not serve the Lord as acceptably, with as much advantage with my private acts of religion? May I not wash in these and be clean? They do not see the great blessings God has attached to the public worship more than to private worship. Oh, but if it is true, as they say, that private worship is as good as public, what does the Lord mean by preferring one before the other? For what reason did the Lord choose the gates of Zion? If he could just as well have been worshipped in any other uh, of the dwelling places of Jacob, why did he make this choice? How do men of this conceit run counter, run against the Lord? The Lord prefers the gates of Zion, not only before one or some of the dwellings of Jacob, but these men prefer a dwelling of Jacob to the gates of Zion. It's not the case that a particular place, a particular address makes our prayers and praises more valuable, but it is the case that God loves it even more when his people join together 
their praises and prayers. William Gurnall, another old writer and pastor, uh, made this point by uh, using the illustration of a parent. Parents of older children especially, perhaps children who have uh, moved out, are glad when their children come to visit them. You know, it's uh, such a good son, such a good daughter when you come to visit your mom and dad. Makes them very happy. But Gurnall says, how much more happy are you as a parent when all your children come together and visit with you for some particular occasion? And so it is with God, Gurnall pointed out, though God is greatly pleased when we visit him in our private prayers, in our private reading of scripture, uh, he is even more pleased when his children come together for worship. And so this is the second glorious feature of the city of God, the church, according to Psalm 87. The church of Jesus Christ, as it gathers together regularly around his word and around uh, the sacraments and and gather in prayer, uh, bears the remarkable distinction of being that which God loves best. Third glorious feature of the church, Zion is a lauded city. She is a city that is praised and is spoken of highly. Verse 3 tells us that glorious Glorious things are spoken of Zion, the city of God. The Hebrew word here uh, for for glorious, for glory, uh, carries this sense of a weightiness. Some of the most weighty and some of the most majestic and some of the most glorious truths ever to pass through the lips of men have been spoken about the church. Now, of course, some terribly wicked things have been said about the church also. She has been despised and scorned by men. I think the psalmist was likely quite aware of this fact, especially if the psalm was written, as I suspect it was, after the people returned from exile. They knew that the city of Zion had seen better days. He knew that the city of Zion, the church, may look plain and beleaguered in the eyes of the world. Though with a scornful wonder the world sees her oppressed and by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet... God insists glorious things are spoken of you, church. However the world might slander the church, God says to us, there are incredibly true things to be said about you. We've already seen this amazingly in our our passage, that the church has this privilege of being established and loved by God in in a way unlike anything else. But we could also add uh, places, other places in Scripture that the, house, uh, the church is the household of God, Ephesians 2. That the church is the body of Christ and she claims Christ, the Son of God, as her head. That the church is the bride of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world, Revelation 21. That the, to the church belongs the privilege of one day being part of that great multitude that will stand before the victorious Lamb of God, Revelation 7. I think it's somewhat normal for us to be proud of our associations. If the company that we work for wins an award for customer service, we're pleased by that. When the school that our kids attend uh, gets some sort of award for excellence in education, we're quite satisfied by that. Well, how much more satisfied, how much more excited should we be that we belong to the church in which these things are true of us. Fourthly, the church is diverse. Zion's population is beautifully diverse. 
The NIV's translation, I think, uh, is more helpful in giving us a, a sense of, of what these verses, verses 4 and 5, are saying. It says, I will record Rahab, that is Egypt, and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too, and Tyre, along with Cush, that's Ethiopia. And we'll say, this one was born in Zion. These verses would have shocked, absolutely shocked, those people who first sung it, the Jews who first sung it. These weren't just any nations that were listed here in this psalm. In the Old Testament, these nations, uh, Egypt, Babylon, Cush, Tyre, Philistia, these were the terrible enemies of God's people. Uh, it, 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 it's hard for us, I think, to get a sense of, of how shocking this is, but uh, imagine uh, for a second that, that we were uh, here on a, on a Sunday, maybe you've been out of high school 10 or 20 years, and Pastor Dale says, okay, today we're going to receive new members. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, he calls up a guy, this massive uh, guy, and you recognize, he used to be a linebacker you know, when I was in high school. He wasn't just a linebacker, he was the guy who stuffed me in my locker and stole my lunch money. And now, he's going to be part of the church here? All of a sudden, you're a little suspicious. You know, what, what's, what's going on here? You know, that, that's a, a, a weak uh, example, but... but uh, this is for, for, Israel's, uh, for Israel, these were the people who had killed uh, your families, your great-grandfather perhaps in war, who had made you live under the shadow of war. Uh, Egypt and Babylon were the two superpowers that had made Israel's life miserable all throughout the Old Testament. They had mistreated them and destroyed their homes and imprisoned them. And now this psalm is saying that they will be brought into church membership. Add to the list Philistia, who was constantly harassing God's people, and Cush, which at that time would have seemed like the furthest ends of the earth. You know, and at one point, they, they appear in, in 2 Chronicles. Uh, they, they bring an army of a million people to try and wipe out the people of God and tire the wealthy seaport to the north. These, these were no friends of the Jews. These were not the people that, that the Jews were expecting to find in Zion, let alone to be designated as citizens of that city, which is what Psalm 87 is saying. In, in the Old Testament, as God was gradually unfolding his plan to save sinners, the Jews were not advertising themselves as a diverse multicultural congregation on their church website. And yet, Psalm 87 says that these nations will be brought in to Zion. They will be brought into the church and made part of this body. And they won't be second-class citizens. They're not there on traveler's visas, but they will be fully incorporated. It will be as if they were born there. The church is this glorious body of mixed saints. Look, look around. I mean, the, the church is filled with people, some who have grown up in the church and, and enjoyed the benefits of being part of the covenant community. There are also those who, who later on have, have been converted in life and brought into the church. There, there are those in the church who are Americans and Germans and Lithuanians uh, and Chinese and Nigerians, there are people across the color spectrum, and when God surveys his church, he sees this vast and diverse sea of faces. And it's remarkable. It's a wonder. There's a stunning diversity to the church. Fifthly, 
And perhaps most importantly, the city of Zion is born of God. How does one become a citizen of Zion? How does one become a part of God's church? Is it just a matter of making the decision to join? Or maybe taking a class or meeting with the elders? Promising to attend regularly and help out? Well, to truly belong to Zion, verse 6 instructs us, it's not something that we decide to do, but it's something that God must bestow. In Psalm 87, the nations don't come into Zion uh, by their own decision, that they would just come in and say, okay, we're a part of this city now. They don't come in by their actions, but by God's. Egypt and Babylon and Cush, they could not make themselves to be born as citizens of Zion simply by a decision of their will. By nature, they did not belong to her and they could not claim a citizenship to that city. There was nothing they could do to change that. The nations could only be brought in and truly made citizens by God, by a gracious action of God. That's what verse 6 says. Those who by nature did not belong to God, those who had no claim to a citizenship in God's church, they are made citizens entirely by God's grace. God has to act in order to bring us into Zion. God has to give us faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he records in his registry the names of each of his chosen ones marking them as belonging to his church. Something incredibly personal about this image. As as the Lord himself writes in the name of his book, Joseph, citizen of Zion. Brennan, citizen of Zion. Your name, citizen of Zion. And he goes down the list, registering each one of those he is determined to bring in. Ephesians 2 tells us uh, that those names are written in his registry. Those who were far off and alienated from the the citizenship of God's people, they were written in the registry by the blood of Christ. By Jesus' death for sin, by his resurrection, we who were far off have been brought into the church of God and made citizens in his holy city. Those who belong to the church, those who have their names written in Zion's registries belong to her, not because they have done something, not because they've made it through an interview with the elders or something like that, but solely because God has done something. He fills the roles of Zion. God populates the streets of his city. It's entirely by grace. He gives the grace of faith and repentance so that we might be joined to Jesus and to be written in Zion's roles. What a remarkable thing. What an incredible privilege to be a citizen of this city, born of God, by God's plan, by God's grace. What a remarkable thing it is to be part of the city of God, the church, secured by God, loved by God, lauded, diverse, citizens by God's grace. Well, the psalm concludes by capturing the natural response of the city's inhabitants, and that's joy. Singers as well as dancers are rejoicing, saying that all our springs are in you. Now, in the context of of Israel, springs of water were an image of refreshment and life. And so here we have this joy-filled reaction of the citizens of, of Zion declaring with great enthusiasm our refreshment, our joy, 
Our delight is in this city of God. Our joy is in the church. This is where we go to be refreshed and built up. So friends, let me ask you. Do you love her? Do you love her? Do you rejoice in the glory and privilege of belonging to Jesus' church? Do you see her as the source of your refreshment as you come week after week, Sunday after Sunday, and partake of the means of grace? Do you see her as your cause for joy? As you walk through the parking lot and as you come through those glass doors, can you think, wow, By God's grace, by the work of Christ, I have been brought into the church. Yes, we recognize that the church on earth is not yet perfect. But she will be. The Lord is making her spotless and blameless. Though there might be things uh, here and now that discourage and frustrate us at times, God knows that too. He sees her sin, he sees her shortcomings with greater clarity than we even do, and he hates that sin that remains in his church, even more than you or I do. And yet he loves her. See what he says in Psalm 87. He sees the beauty and glory of his church. So do you love her? This is a mark of truly belonging to her, when we love her and rejoice in her. What a picture we're given here. See how God has established and protects her. See the special love that he has for her. See how he personally attends to filling her roles. See how how he has brought in people from every tribe and nation and tongue. See and love her. Love the church. Oh, may God help us love her. So, So pray for her. Pray for the prosperity of the church. Pray for revival. Pray, Pray that the Lord would protect her and hold true to his promise to establish her as he will. And serve the church. Uh, Teach Sunday school. Aspire to serve as an office bearer. Long to see the church flourish. And spend time with the church. When you come here on Sunday, be excited. Kids, when when, when you come to church, you get to say, I'm going to a place where God deeply loves. To do something God uh, uh, delights in. We get to do that. So spend time with her. Be be a part of the church. Oh, that, that the Lord would make us people who love his church so that we could sing as the church with full conviction and depth of emotion the song we sang earlier. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion shall be given. The brightest glories earth can yield and brighter bliss of heaven. Oh, the glory of the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, how oftentimes uh, words fail us. 
how oftentimes um, our emotions are, are cool and numb to incredibly awesome truths, truths that will one day uh, j- just melt us with joy. Father, we thank you that you, uh, in love and by your grace, have determined to save a people and bring them into your church, to take sinners undeserving of your grace and favor and to, to turn them into your bride. Father, oh, that you would, would give us grace to see the privilege it is to be a member in the church of Jesus Christ, to take confidence in the fact that you are the one uh, who's laid our foundations and secures us, to, to know that you love us and, and delight in our worship together, to see the work that you are doing in bringing people from every tribe, uh, nation, and tongue, to, to uh, see, Lord, uh, the, the beauty of the work of regeneration, where you take people who were far off and you cause them to be born as citizens of Zion. Oh, the grace you have shown us, Lord. We thank you for it. We love you. Help us to love your church. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.